It's .NET Rocks! Yeah! You know, it's uh, it's beer o'clock at NDC yeah, now. Yeah, this so. is not a subdued crowd. No, not a subdued crowd at all. So uh, we're here in Oslo. This is our going serverless panel. We're here with a few guests. We're going to have some fun, and then you're going to drink some beer. Or more beer, is the case. Or maybe. more beer. Uh, I'd like to start with Rob Connery. Rob helps developers of all sorts learn what's new with technology. He's been working in the technology field full-time since 1998 as a DBA and then a web developer. His original focus was the Microsoft ASP.NET stack, building tools like Subsonic and the first micro-ORM, Massive. Woo-hoo. little Woo-hoo. irony yeah. in that name right there. <laughs> like that. A long time ago. Next to him is Lynn Langett. She's a, a cloud and big data architect, AWS community hero, Google Cloud developer expert, Microsoft Azure insider, MVP, and lynda.com author. Wow. When do you sleep? Yeah, that's right. what I want to know. <laughs> she does it all. She's currently working on IoT cloud projects, and Lynn is also the director and lead courseware developer for the nonprofit Teaching Kids Programming. Which we've done a whole show on in the past. Yeah. yeah. And finally, all the way to the right here, or your left, is Matthias Brandeweiner. Uh, he's been developing software on .NET for about 10 years and loving every minute of it, except maybe for a few release days. <laughs> I'm thinking all the early ASP.NET Core releases. Those were pretty tough. Yeah. His language of choice was C-sharp until he discovered F-sharp and fell in love with it. He enjoys arguing about code and how to make it better and gets very excited when discussing TDD or F-sharp. Don't discuss them in the same conversation nice. or you'll be hurting. <laughs> Matthias is a Microsoft F-sharp MVP and founder of Clear Alliance Consulting. A big hand for our panel. So in the 90s and the 2000s, we had our servers, and then we had our cloud, and there were servers in the cloud, and now you're telling us to take our servers away. What are you guys doing? What are they doing to us? <sighs> Discuss. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to sit over here. <laughs> uh, you do have to start with the name serverless. It is a problem. Yeah, it is a yeah, problem, isn't it? there is servers, yeah. right? Yes. God, does it make you cringe? Does it make you cringe hearing that? It probably should be called ceremony-less. I would say that's about right. Less ceremonial. At some point, it was called nanoservices. I don't know which one is worse. Nanoservices. That's good. Oh. Mm, as opposed to microservices. How, how far down can we get? Yeah. I mean, yeah. what's after nanoservices? Pico services. Pico. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I like the way Scott Hanselman describes it, which is you, you're a slider, and your credit card, and some code. Nanoservices, <laughs> 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 pretty much, I think. Huh? It's all about that credit card, yeah, actually. Exactly. Right. This is sort of the least ceremony you could get. I'm just going to write my code, run it for me, and then run it as many times as somebody asks for it. And only charge me for when it runs. Yeah. Or not at all. Or not at all. Yeah. If it's not running. Yeah, which is really the big deal. Well, no, I have Even I have running? clients that are running on free tiers and, okay. and running really? running quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of them that probably a lot of you guys have heard of is A Cloud Guru. They very notoriously yeah. started their own site, which was Amazon training on the Amazon free tier serverless. And mm-hmm. I think they're up to like 20, 30,000 users a month and they're mm-hmm. still on the free tier. And they're still on the free tier. That's sort of circumventing the concept of the free tier is supposed to get you started and then you eventually pay, right? Well, the idea is that you're going to pay for premium services like machine learning and stuff like that. Right. But if you're just using pure storage and compute, there are use cases that make sense on free tier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't everything make sense free? Isn't that? <laughs> <laughs> I like free everything. Yeah, but you know, eventually they're going to go out of business because there is no business. So how do they do that? 
Yeah, I don't know how long that uh, lasts. Yeah. I've always interpreted this whole serverless movement as started sort of by the community where they demanded the concept of Lambda from AWS. Does anybody else have a, a narrative for how this started? No? Do you disagree with it? Well, for me, it started with Lambda. I mean, I was right. at reInvent, and it was a, like a bomb dropped when Lambda launched. And there was this just incredible momentum from uh, developers, this frenzy, and people were building things right at reInvent. While you're watching it being presented, you start writing code. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, like when I was at reInvent this year, and they announced Athena, which is serverless SQL, literally there was a guy that before the end of the demo got something in production and he <laughs> tweeted it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was probably Steve Sanderson. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about like it. He's yeah. kind of magical that way. I've seen a bit the same thing on the Azure side. So I, ha I have no experience with the lambdas, but uh, what I have found about this is extremely liberating. So maybe, so you started as a DBA. I never, I'm not an IT guy by background. I have very little patience for IT. This is not what I want to do. And it was just shocking to me. I could just take a script, ship it and have something in production. Like this is uh, amazing. And so yeah, yeah, people just picked it up and it's, uh, you just write a couple of lines of code and uh, it runs. It's a uh, magic. And in your preferred world, Matthias, is Azure functions that is correct okay mm -hmm. yeah and it and I, it's hard to argue with that i just f feel like this is not well represented i wonder if it's just fatigue yeah that there's so much has changed so quickly in the cloud between the iaz versus paz versus containers do you want kubernetes do you want docker and then they come along and go hey you could just do serverless and like a lie because yeah. there's a server yeah. and b like <laughs> i've looked at enough stuff thanks do i have to look at this too yeah my question is when do you stop doing serverless functions and go to a, a more robust microservices framework? I mean, we, I know that long-running things right. don't work, right? right? We know that. But but if somebody's got a whole business based on, you know, microservices and they, they're planning to use maybe, you know, Azure Service Fabric or something like that, and somebody comes along and says, no, we don't need any of that. We can just do these functions. Are they crazy or is it doable? All the big enterprise project that I worked on last year was blended architecture. It was kind of interesting because the developers that came in were kind of old school and they said, oh, we don't even want to use containers, much less serverless. And so we fired them. <laughs> and we brought in some new people. And, uh, we well, that's one answer. We, well, we, yeah, got yeah. The, we got most of it built server serverlessly, but there was a, an implementation we had to do a custom security pairing. It was IoT thing, and it was long running. Okay. And so we used the nano solution. Sure. So it was blended. That and makes I'm, sense. I, yeah, and I'm thinking that that's going to be more typical in the enterprise that you're going to have blended stuff because right. there's hard limits on but Lambda. Is, but is long running the only thing? I mean, why would you? I mean, I get all the good stuff that comes right. with service fabric right. for scaling and, and uh, all of that stuff. What Do you get that just built in without any controls in, in functions? It was also control because it was a security functionality. Mm. Like we wanted to be able to SSH into the servers. We wanted to be able to make sure the service was 100% up. We wanted to have the level of control because the pattern of lambdas firing lambdas mm. wasn't fast enough for us yeah. for, for, for authentication. We tried it. Yeah. But it didn't work. Because each Lambda is effectively a security boundary. So there's a lot of mm -hmm. authenticating and, and re-authenticating. Well, and there's latency when it comes up. Sure. And it was too much latency in our case. Oh, all right. Is I mean, that the case with Azure Functions as well? You Don't. have a cold start. Yeah, so it's cold start. Yeah. yeah, it's cold okay. start. So the uh, like, uh, once it's fired, it's going to be pretty fast. But the first call will yeah. take a tiny oh, bit of time. The first call after yeah. compiling. Yeah. It's same yeah. with Firebase yeah. as well. Even uh, even later than compiling, because like you don't pay because things go kind of to sleep. Oh right, yeah. sure. Yep. 
So in that sense, so there you go. There's another reason why you don't want to do that. You know, we were if, up against if, the same thing even with ASP.NET pages and things. Like sure. eventually, .NET shuts stuff down if you're not calling it off enough. I guess the question is how frequently you have to call it. You don't have cold starts. I think that depends on what you want to do. So is like, uh, to go back to the question of when you would want to use a function or not, is like in my case, I started from scripts. So small applications, they're mm -hmm. places which are no brainers. Like if you have a job which runs once a week, takes yeah. a minute, like you should just do that because you're yeah. going to pay like one minute a month. And uh, now is like, I'm uh, looking at things where like, at what point is it a bad idea? And I wish I had the answer to that. I don't know yet. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. One of you the have nice to test it, basically. Yeah. So, sorry. One of the that's okay. One of the nice things about Firebase um, that I found is it's just easy to add on little projects. And you find yourself doing that in a natural way to answer your question about microservices. So I made a cart thing, and it turned into a checkout thing. And then I thought, well, what about delivery? And I was like, I just made another app. And then yeah. I gave it a different URL, and then I, I thought about, well, what about notifications and Checkout other things? Checkoutthing.com. Yeah, I made another thing. It was really neat to just tack all those things together. And yeah. I'm writing all the data into Postgres anyway, because I don't trust Firebase. Okay. Now, should we talk, I mean, everybody sort of gets Amazon, certainly gets Azure. Tell us a little bit about Firebase here, Rob. Uh, Firebase was a real-time database. That was their only claim to fame a few years back. And then Google bought them. So now they're part of the Google Cloud uh, initiative. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a real-time database. You get authentication. You get storage. You get functions. Um, I'm missing a few in there. You get, you get all these really insanely amazing triggers. That, and I say that because you, you can reach out to just about anything and get a trigger off of it, like a, mm. a Google Analytics event. Uh, when someone uploads a thing, they, uh, like a file to the servers, you can trigger a function. Right. Someone writes the real-time database, which they do right from the browser, that'll trigger a function. As a matter of fact, that's how people actually check out on the site that I wrote, mm. is the checkout information, the items, and the payment from the token from Stripe just gets written to the database. There's no AJAX call that yeah. I'm making. Right. No that, separate invocation. Yeah, and that just triggers a function. It goes bing, 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 bing. For, for, and it was amazing, too, because to what you said about the latency between the functions, I didn't even notice it. And it was enough that I could do a real-time checkout where I'm checking a progress flag on the client yeah. and watching all the functions go off and little check marks tick. And nice. Then, yeah, it's done with the order. It was pretty neat to see. And so in, in the Azure land, do we have the similar ways to trigger functions, or do we... Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's kind of what I enjoyed about it. Is like most mm. of the scenarios are there. You have like timers, which are obvious. Yeah. You have the queue. You have an uh, HTTP request. You have hooks to uh, GitHub to all these things. You can uh, write your own sure. and add them. So, uh, and that's one of the nice things because like most of the scenarios I wanted to cover are just there out of the box, so right. I don't have to think about it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, in the brownfield scenario where we're coming from. VMs or mm -hmm. any other number of things. It feels like and we were going through this with the .NET Rock site alone, right? Yeah. We started off with one VM that was all the things, yeah, and then just started peeling out websites and so forth. I got to imagine like you'd be in a hybrid for forever, like actually turning stuff off completely is rare. You just keep peeling more pieces out. Maybe they're functions. Maybe they come in another form. So then I'm kind of curious also about what's happening in the other sides because I haven't touched anything but Azure Functions. But mm -hmm. uh, So one question is like how big, at what point is it a bad idea to put many functions? Like a friend of mine has something with I think 140 lambdas, but he made that work. 140. Yes. Okay. That's one uh, direction where it's tricky because at that point is like how do you keep track of what's actually going on in your app? Right. The other one is like I started uh, doing something which is in a hybrid app where I have like something which is a Windows server with a Windows service and I want to call the functions and how to make that work together. I don't have the patterns quite yet, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is uh, kind of what I find interesting in the field because it makes lots of problems simple. But then it's like you have lots of problems which uh, were simple before and uh, you have no patterns. So it's uh, mm -hmm. both scary and exciting, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
That's definitely true. I mean, in the project I worked on, we had continuous deployment pipeline. And so we did the cattle, not pets, a pattern where every time you have new code, you just kill the VM and then you have a new one. And when we refactored to functions, we went through that process. Right. Yeah. And we had kind of an interim point where we tried containers, but containers actually didn't provide us with value, which was an interesting learning to me. Hmm. We just went from... So I don't know if you know this, Lynn, but containers are the new hotness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm curious as to why. You know, what what was it about your particular thing that made containers not? Valuable? It was a container orchestration. Is kind of an immature yeah. uh, area right and now. A lot of work. But what kind yeah, of exactly? What, what kind of things are you doing in the functions that might clue us into? Uh, well, what we were doing was it was I, enterprise IoT, and oh. so it was a, a phone app to control enterprise IoT. So it was a CRUD model basically, mm. but right. with MQTT. Okay. So it was easily refactorable because it was the different kinds of messages lend themselves to that. Yeah. So, but to me, that was a big learning because I thought that we might have some value out of Docker as an interim solution because it was less a technology problem and more a learning problem for the yeah, team. Sure. Like they were running off getting certified and all this stuff, but Docker didn't really help. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like the effort to decompose out of the sort of traditional monolith mm -hmm. model. Yeah. It's not going to be easier to stop at containers than it would be just go directly to serverless. It hasn't been in the two clients I've worked with. Okay. And, you know, I, I'm in this group, Amazon Community Heroes, which is like MVPs. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's an interesting group because they are in these really high volume sites like Reddit and Netflix and stuff like that. And their report working at those levels in the Amazon ecosystem is similar. Hmm. That for Amazon, a lot of people are just going straight to Lambda. Mm -hmm. Wow. The, the one thing I sort of saw in the orchestration management space, or maybe you could even lay this on Azure API management, is just like n being able to deal with a bad actor, somebody who's just almost, you know, it costs you money for every call. So if somebody winds up and is just calling you a million times an hour for no good reason, how do you stop that account? I don't have a good answer to that. Self-destruct <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> well, I would think that the Azure API management service, and I only know about that because Vishwas Lilith That's taught right. us yeah. on another show that you would put that in front of your Azure function so that it's putting the gates on those things. Yeah, so I can't really speak that much about the, the, the proxy or the Azure proxies. Like, I know they built that so that you can build an API in front, and then it's like uh, you, uh, you don't have to deal with the functions themselves, so like you pipe them, pipe them there. My use case has been more enterprisey, maybe, so uh, it's not in that I have used it mainly to do to build Twitter bots, right? So that's and you're not exposing it to the public. It's your apps that are calling them. Correct. And okay. so most of what I have been doing is the queues, queues, queues because I like queues. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Apparently, it's only you. <laughs> so uh, I'm getting back to this whole idea about you know Docker and value of Docker versus functions. And I I'm, I'm trying to think of you know that I guess people love Docker because they can just go from one cloud platform to another yeah, very easily. There, there is Whereas, that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're writing a C sharp function. Yeah. Well, it's a familiar paradigm, right? Because like you, before you had a, a VHD file, mm. and now you have a Docker file, right? Yeah. So like mm -hmm. the DevOps people are much more comfortable with that. Well, like, plus being able to execute on the the developer's machine, yeah. on the QA machine, right. onto the production right. machine. Yeah, right. I mean, I talked about it in my talk here. Uh, my experience has been the DevOps people in enterprise freak out when you start putting functions in continuous deployment pipelines because they have to learn all new tools. Right. Like, and the vendors are catching up. Like Amazon has X-Ray now, which is pretty cool. And Google stack drivers, pretty solid there. And I assume Microsoft has something now, but they have to learn a lot of new stuff. They mm. can't 
follow their typical processes to understand what's going on with functions. Interesting. Do you have then thoughts also on, uh, so on the question of containers? I think you brought up the fact that it can be run pretty much everywhere you want. Because mm-hmm. one topic which pops up is a uh, vendor lock-in. It's like if I decide yeah. to uh, uh, that I don't want an Azure function anymore, I'm yeah. not sure how I would extricate myself and a container will run everywhere. Like, uh, right, right. Well, because the functions, whether it's Firebase or Amazon or, or function, they're specific to the platform and you kind of have to be online right like developing in the in the airplane is going to be tough this is the funny thing about firebase is it's you can write your code to be ab- like free of of their framework believe oh. it or not yeah you can mm. so one of the things they have is an https trigger so it's just an endpoint yep and you can write code you know the the function code the way you see in the demos or you can just create an express app and pass the Express app to the function, and then you have your full value that you would have with Express, and then if you need to pick up and move, you just take your Express app and go host it somewhere else. Interesting. Yeah, and so that was fascinating, and you don't get the real-time database and all the auth stuff. Right. You still have a level of platform lock-in, but when I tried Lambda, uh, that was the first thing I thought, is there's nothing getting me out of here. Mm-hmm. Although it was Node, but it didn't have the same level of like just light touch that you have with Firebase that I really liked. Because in theory, you could pick up that Node code and stick it in a container, and it's yep. basically the same code. It's just not now you're owning the infrastructure that it runs in. Yeah, that's it. That, that's the feeling that I think the Firebase team is trying to go for. That there, that's just here's a little bit of orchestration that, to give you, and then off you go. So you have an option of a local runtime. You want to run it on prem? Go ahead. Uh, not that I know. Not I don't really so. what Express yeah. is about. Well, you can. I mean, you can you can set your code up. You don't have to use their real time database. It's just there for you. Sure. Uh, same with their PubSub and a bunch of other things. But if you needed to pull that app out and go on your own servers, it requires work. But it's not its not a dead stop. No, and, and it's not like rewrite everything either. No, mm. it's not. And it, but I think, I mean, I would argue, what are you writing your functions in, Matthias? Like, is this C-sharp? Uh, F-sharp. F-sharp? Big surprise. <laughs> Excuse me? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, it's all F-sharp, but uh, at that point, I think it's, uh, so C-sharp is supported, JavaScript, Bash, sure. like, PHP, which is kind of interesting because uh, one of the benefits of a function is that like, uh, it allows you to focus on the business value and not the infrastructure. There is but no infrastructure at this point, really. Right. Yeah, but, like, the infrastructure doesn't care about the code. Like, it picks it up and essentially you tell it, these are my bindings, and that like, calls some code, and it doesn't really care what it's written in. So yeah. it's like, for me, I care about the code, and they care about uh, the whole infrastructure. Absolutely. If you guys could just hold that thought right there, we'll take a few minutes to pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud platform. What? Isn't this a .NET show? Yeah. .NET runs on the Google Cloud platform, man. Everything in .NET? You bet. All the .NET core libraries and more, including 200 plus Google.com and cloud services. Hey, John Skeet's behind it. He's a genius. The John Skeet? The rescue the princess John Skeet from Stack Overflow? (laughs) Yeah, the one and only. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine, which is Google's hosted Kubernetes environment, and it runs like, well, Google. What about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. I'm reading it now. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. Yep. You can get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. Also, there are PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And if you need help, there are a great set of partners to get workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. .NET on Google. Who knew? You're listening to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. We're here with a, a panel of three talking about serverless computing 
Or is it really? Somebody else's server computing. Somebody else's server computing. So F-sharp in the cloud. Actually, not in the cloud, because that's the second part. So one part is the language, but the other one is also where do you write your code. Mm -hmm. So when uh, functions came out of the box, it's like you had to go to the Azure portal, you had to write code in an online editor, and this is not what I want. Yeah. Like for many reasons, like the editor is okay, but like uh, you mentioned in the plane, I don't want to be stuck not being able to write sure. code, to run it. And so all my code I write in uh, in code, like in VS Code. Right. Mm -hmm. Took a bit of effort, but that's also a place where I don't know how the other functions look, but like uh, that was actually a bit uh, of pain to find patterns on uh, how to write that code, because because uh, it makes things easy, but out of the box, it's not completely obvious how you write code with your classical editor. So that's yeah, yeah. Uh, but it eventually, it makes its way to the cloud, is what I'm saying. Yeah, like yeah. so. At that point, I use the command line, I write stuff, and then yeah. at some point, you push it to GitHub, you do whatever, and it just runs. Yeah, it just runs. Yep. That's that's kind of nice. But in all these contexts, you're effectively stateless. Like if you write some F# -sharp code that opens up a file stream and tries to write to a file, when you push it up to Azure Functions, it's going to be sad. Mm -hmm. The, uh, yeah, and the, uh, the statelessness is uh, interesting too and forces you to uh, write a bit differently. It's not quite the same as maybe actors in Erlang or things like that, but you have a bit of something like that. Every function will have like no state. So it fires, you run, and then it's gone. Yeah. So you can't keep uh, anything in memory between the calls, which is uh, great because uh, then it's like you know that if it crashes, it, uh, it doesn't matter. But then it's like if you need to maintain state, you need to maybe persist it and all these things. So it uh, requires also a bit of a rethinking on how you write your code. Sure. Well, not only that, but um, on Firebase, it's a, just a node module that when you push it, your functions are just exports on a node module, and that's mm. it. Uh, so you can send your node modules up, and and I, I was going to try this, but I never did. I was wondering if I could write to the local directory. Right. Yeah. But then you think not knowing like, where it is, you don't want to do that because uh, that's actually defeating the point. Because when heavy traffic and load comes in, they just spawn another node process to right. handle your functions. Yeah. And then you're then you're dust. I mean, because then you have a whole other process that's not going to know what you're talking so about. So what were you trying to write to the local directory for? There's a like a SQLite of document databases called NEDB. Oh, and okay. it just writes to a text file. But you so could have easily used a service for that. Oh, I could. Yeah, I yeah, just yeah, wanted sure. to try and see what you were trying to hot trouble. I got No, I like to see where things break. Yeah, yeah. yeah in case you didn't know that. But typically it's about, you know, image like files cups. or stuff like that, yeah, the reason exactly. that you'd write. But, you know, we have this whole thing called the web. Well, the Firebase storage, that's what they offer that for. So if yeah. you need to upload files, they give you a centralized you spot. Yeah. Let's so see. Lynn, what's the uh, AWS story? So the typical that? pattern is use S3 and make sure you encrypt if it, the data warrants that, or DynamoDB. But we did, in the big project I worked on, we did something weird because we had so much net new. And what we did is we used actually Aurora rather than DynamoDB. What's Aurora? Aurora is a is big SQL. Basically, it's oh. big MySQL. It's a bunch okay. of lights in the sky. Yeah, yeah. I'll a tell you anyway, anyway. So we put we put the CRUD lambdas in front, and it was almost like a stored procedure pattern. Oh hmm. wow! Because it was less for the the developers to learn. Sure. And it worked great. And Amazon, you know, kind of had a conniption when they came out and looked at that because they said this is an anti-pattern, and then lo and behold, they now offer support for it. <laughs> yeah, anti-pattern is anything it's, we don't understand. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Right up until it becomes a pattern. And what's the preferred <laughs> language for Lambda? We chose Node. Um, Node really seems to have the broadest support. Python's right up there. Interestingly, mm -hmm. though, uh, Amazon just added support for C Sharp. Mm. Interesting. Which oh, I yeah. thought was very, very clever of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Google really likes C Sharp these days, too, yeah. don't they? Oh, yeah. You know, John Skeet, Chris Sells, and all those <laughs> guys. Right. 
Yeah. Sabotage. Yeah. Are you eye rolling there, Mr. Connery? <laughs> no. You ex blue badge you. Yes. No, I would never do such a thing. Uh, Let's do it together, huh? Okay. I think it's really cool. I, I really do think it's cool that they're they're jumping on. Yeah. yeah. Code in the language of your choice. Right? And, but yeah. why not F sharp? That's what I'm wondering. It'll come. Oh, because F sharp sucks. That's what I'm oh. saying. Oh. I've got it. That's my thing. I gotta get a dig on an F sharp every talk I give. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting such a nice panel too. Yeah, and then I, I invited Rob Connery. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sorry. Everything goes wrong after that. I, I want to jump back a little bit to this idea of like at 140 functions, it's almost like I have the stored procedure problem now where I have this huge, like, like in the end, the only way I'm going to find something is I had a good naming strategy. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you agree with that? Is, that? is that how you manage that many or is there a way to sort them? So I didn't write that 140. Okay. Let's like, go find God. that guy. But, the, uh, but I think that's a real problem too. So one of the things which is nice about functions is like each of them is completely independent. Yes. They live in their own world and that's fine. But then if you start to have 10, 20 of them, it's like mm-hmm. at some point, like, how the hell do you know this works? Like, right. uh, and it's very much uh, convention based. Like I will say, I need a queue called foo and the queue is there and that's fine. And another one is looking for a queue called foo. And if I type something slightly misspelled is like uh, maybe everything is broken and I don't quite know that right but the flip side of this is like what I found interesting is like uh, so again like you write the code but like uh, you have a very self-described system in that every function also contains the bindings in a JSON file right and so by looking at this you can uh, you can see each what each function does and with, uh, one of the things I built for myself is something which is going to scan every possible function and uh, rebuild the whole uh, well, application diagram. Yeah. And that's pretty awesome because uh, with a classical application, you take it and uh, there is no way you will get a diagram which shows you what the application does. And with this, is like I have names. I see that this one talks to this queue, talks there, and I can see immediately what the whole thing, how well, it's working. And I would have think that I would have thought that that exists in the Azure portal. I mean, you know, you, they would give you some sort of management software or management tools. Uh, as far as I know, it's not there, but like, uh, I, I wrote this for myself and like, they thought it was a good idea. So maybe they will do it at maybe. some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and at what point do you just say, let's well, use service fabric? I mean, that's what service fabric does. It does all that great management stuff for you. Lynn, you were talking about when you had functions calling functions, you were not happy with the performance. Right. Do you run into this too, Matthias? Or do you have functions calling functions? Just yeah, like, uh, that's a nice thing. Is like a function is nice, but what's nice, especially, especially in the Azure functions, it makes it very easy to pipe them together. Like, right. uh, and so, but I don't have that type of problem. I mean, the performance at that point is like the queue or something like that, and mm-hmm. maybe the cold start. But, uh, and, and to be clear, it was in that one use case that we had right. problem. I've had other use cases that works fine. Mm-hmm. And, it, and again, we get into this hierarchical model of functions with what our endpoints what are called into and can we sort those things out can we see what's related to what and, and sort of get a view of the the calling hierarchy yeah and this is why i wanted that diagram because like it's kind of implicit sure yeah and, but i really liked that the natural tendency and you you're describing this very well rob is it like as you solve one problem after the next you're making separate individual units that then could be sorted into any order or utilized in different ways or different purposes like i remember scott guthrie saying i really want you to fall into the pit of success mm-hmm. That this tendency, the way it naturally wants to work, is a is a pr- approach that will tend to encourage reuse, tend to keep simplicity a focus. That refactoring is not that big of a deal. Like I, I like everything about that, as long as I can keep it in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually a problem I, I ran into. I mean, I I like to talk well about Firebase, but there's also pain. Sure, you know, like mm-hmm. evented programming is not always the easiest thing to understand. So I triggered a function when an invoice got written, and and so the the function would go off and it would send an email to the user and a few other things, and then at the very end it would tag the invoice with email sent. Mm. 
So if you're triggering a function when the invoice is written and you write to that invoice at the very end of that function, guess what's going to happen next? You're going to fire it again. And you're going to fire it again mm -hmm. and again and again and yeah. again. And I'm watching Welcome the logs. To the happy loop. And the logs are going off and I'm sending like 100 emails off to this test account. I'm like, oh my God. What and have I so done? If invoice.contains yeah. email sent. I'm like, where's then, the stop button? Where's the yeah. stop button? And so that's one thing you have to get used to is uh, not doing that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for me to take my Docker file back. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Oh, he channeled his inner Cartman. That's right. It's actually time to give away a de-experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Michael Orbenberger. Big hand for Michael. <laughs> no golf claps here today. No. It's <laughs> a full Monty. And Michael just won the DevExpress D-Experience uh, subscription just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, this is true, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But done you have to times. sign up to win. Yeah. That's right. We've done it four times. We've given away $20,000 worth of stuff so far. And we like to ask our guests as well, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, Rob Connery, what would you buy? An Xbox. Nice. <laughs> the, the Xbox X? Oh, yes. The Xbox One X. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It does look pretty cool. It's 500 bucks, so you can get 10 of them. Yeah, I'll do that. A little, little one for everybody. You get an Xbox. Yeah. You get an Xbox. Yeah. <laughs> Give them away at Halloween. That's right. Yeah. How about you? A 4K Xbox. How about you, Lynn? This is a weird answer because mm. I've got a heavy travel schedule coming up. I'm flying all over the world. It's kind of an aside. I would buy airplane upgrades so I could oh, get the technology mm. in the airplane. That's, that's nice. quality of life right there. That's what that is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. More business class tickets. Mateus? And I'd probably get a, get a chair, like a good programming chair. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. underrated. And, uh, right, look, uh, these stools were the best we could do. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you talk about programming chairs. Of course, the Aeron, the yeah. Hammer Miller Aeron, has been the reference chair since the dot-com boom, yeah. which is, you know, 17, 18 years ago now. I still have mine, which I picked up at like a fire sale after the dot-com boom was over, and they were cheap. Mm. But the only other chair I've seen in that class that's sort of newer is a chair called the Human Scale. I need to check that Sounds out. Sounds creepy. 1500 <laughs> buck chair, and it looks like it's actually doing surgery on you when you sit on it. There's all these little knobs and bends and things is in it. Is it Japanese? It is not. Because they make all this crazy thing. Is it yeah. serverless? No, it's not serverless. <laughs> if it was Japanese, it'd have tentacles, and that's a different conversation. Uh, we should not go there. That's not something that let's not do that. water. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that at all. We're going to move on past that. But uh, we talk about being developers. Basic, day-to-day -day things that, you know, I love the 80% case. What do you do every day that matters? Great chair. Great keyboard. Like, you can buy a $20 keyboard. Buy the $200 keyboard. Mm. You will be happier. Mm -hmm. And more screen space. 
More better monitors. More Azure credits. More, yeah. Better coffee machine. Better uh, coffee. Because we all are just creatures to convert caffeine into code, right? Mm. I'm a big fan of the, I got a, the, the Dell 43-inch 4K, which is a 100 DPI 4K monitor. That's a lot of monitor. I'd like one of these. Yeah. <laughs> you code on that? So they, they, what is that, like a 20-foot yeah. projected display? Yeah. And I'll get, tell you that, that projector back there that's filling that screen, that's not 5000 bucks, man. No. That's more than that. Those are expensive projectors. I could buy the lens. There you go. Yeah. Or maybe the bulb. You could buy the bulb. All right, we got to get back to this because uh, yes, there's so much to talk about in this space. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me. Uh, I've been reading discussions around the sort of progressive web app serverless is going to be the new modern app. Like that, that's it's just going to be the browser calling to functions, nothing else. With an icon on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> Disagree? No? You like it? I don't know. I mean, I, like I was saying before, step by step, everything seemed to fall in place. And uh, to Matthias's point, it felt fun. Yeah. Because uh, I wasn't worrying about view template engines and everything else. I just was writing code and I had a static site generating all the HTML. Mm-hmm. And then I was just using the Firebase SDK to talk to the database. Maybe the only thing that makes you unhappy is HTML. Have you considered that? Yeah. It makes me unhappy. You know, lots of things make me unhappy, okay. unfortunately. Uh, so, yeah, I know. I felt like a hacker again, is what I told a friend. Where Back in the days of writing ASP Classic, you didn't care. You just wrote the code. Right. Yeah. You didn't yeah. worry about anything else. And in this sense... Nobody was ever going to see it. Yeah, there's freedom to not knowing the patterns. There's freedom to not caring so much and just discovering something new. Like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and I could pub sub over the other app and do, oh, wow, that's neat. Maybe mm. some of the weight on this is sort of, you You know if I, that you may be doing something that's going to punish you later. Yeah. And, and the, I'm and, good with that one. I'm, yeah. I'm really a champion at that one. Yeah, it's, always, it's always the case, though. Like, yeah, that's right. It's my experience, always, yeah. like whatever the pattern, at some point you will be punished so later. So I think the advantage of serverless is whoever's punished later, it's somebody else's yeah. fault. <laughs> one, so then you're okay with it. Yeah. One thing I did find, actually, along those lines, I'm glad you brought it up, was I was trying to be a good object-oriented programmer and have my models and have everything in place with this Node app, so I could just move it over. And it just, for some reason, was not fitting. It wasn't working. I don't know why. So I went to a more functional way of doing things, mm-hmm. which is just the data comes out, and I transform it, and I put it back. And I don't have any models that represent the data. And that fit perfectly. Interesting. I don't know why. And I really don't know why. you shop after this there statement? Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. See, I knew it was coming. But I would almost say <laughs> the functional <laughs> tendency of sort of approach it from an immutable perspective, mm-hmm. right? I'm never going to modify anything. I'm going to output the change thing. Mm. That, uh, that, to me, speaks volumes of that service approach and it's, yeah. it's naturally immutable mm-hmm. pass data in transform do something else yes you know? and give it an output right? mm-hmm. don't modify mm-hmm. give us an output that's yeah. a new incarnation it's not your memory anyway you don't care it's gone afterwards where, where do you see it going and I, each of the each of you have done it on different platforms and I'd like to know where the holes are where, where you think things could be improved well something that I always think is a big part of serverless I talked about in my talk that hasn't been mentioned here is serverless to me is not just serverless compute it's serverless data mm-hmm. and so because I build these huge data pipelines for mm. everything from social media to you know sensor monitoring and like on the Google ecosystem, they have a number of offerings around serverless data that I'm helping my customers to understand. So they have things like Bigtable, and I don't really know what it is in Azure, but Amazon has a similar type of thing, and BigQuery, and all these different sort of data services. So you ask, like, where are the vendors going to make their money? Mm. Sure. It's on these premium services. Yeah. And going really high level, machine learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually looking, you know, we talk about immutable pieces. I'm looking at TensorFlow and MXNet. Because those are distributed, immutable machine learning pieces. And again, the most premium services and helping customers to figure out when and how to use those serverless services. TensorFlow is a Google thing. What did you call it? Say it again. 
TensorFlow? TensorFlow, yeah. TensorFlow is distributed machine learning. Okay. Uh, deep uh, learning. Yeah, deep learning. And deep MXNet learning, yeah. for Amazon. And Azure has something. So right? the uh, the equivalent to TensorFlow would be CNTK? Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. So that's to me like kind of where the hotness is. Because I, I have a DBA background for the audience. I code, but I come more from a DevOps side. Mm -hmm. So that's a part of the serverless architectures that I'm doing a lot of work on. Do you think that the machine learning part is sort of inevitable about being in the cloud anyway? It's yep. like, I don't care what tech you use. If you store your data in the cloud, yep. we're going to get you with the machine learning platform yes. stuff. Yeah. And and not in a bad way. I tried to do OLAP and machine learning related stuff in the 90s. You know, I was a Ralph Kimball disciple. And those were all two comma number bets mm -hmm. that you had to make in advance where I'm looking at 30-something different potential mining algorithms and I have to figure out which one I'm going to use because each one of them runs three or four right. days. Mm -hmm. it, it would just be great if some of these things could be powered by machine learning and we didn't even know it, you know, just like like auto-scaling, for example. Wouldn't it be great if just some robot took care of that for you? Well, Google's actually suggesting to you on their instances what instance you should use. I mean, Amazon gives you this through their trusted advisor, but Google mm. gives it to you in the UI hmm. and says, hey, you should switch to this machine type or this number of cores based on the workload we're seeing. And that's yeah. based on machine learning against your workload. And uh, Google also allows you to trigger a function based on, I kind of glossed over this, but Google Analytics events, mm -hmm. you can you can craft mm. up whatever analytics event mm -hmm. you want to respond to and a function will fire. <laughs> and I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty insane yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's more than the analytics. Analytics typically sounds like a read-only thing. That's a, yeah. that's real code. Yep. Yeah. Can I go back for a second to, uh, so you mentioned the term serverless data. I have never heard that and uh, I don't understand what it is. So uh, what I mean by that is that the rather than having like a database cluster mm -hmm. that you manage, BigQuery is a good example of this, Google BigQuery. So it's been around a really long time. You just upload a CSV file, and then you just enter ANSI SQL query against the data. I actually showed it in my serverless talk, five terabytes of data um, going from 82 million rows down to 2,500 rows in less than 30 seconds for five bucks. So it's not really the data, it's more a serverless query? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. But uh, different types of processing, whether okay. it's SQL or machine learning. So I guess the idea is you don't have to have a SQL manager or a, a management tool that you just express it yeah, in your code or your yeah. metadata. But and no, no app. clustering, no log shipping, yeah. no backups, right. no nothing. Yeah. This is a game changer. But yeah. you're paying for the persistence. Yeah. Yeah. Because you do want to keep that data right. Five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I like that price. <laughs> Well, I think more than anybody, Amazon has been driving this sort of race to the bottom in terms of pricing, yeah. especially for the infrastructure parts, mm -hmm. right? If you, the VMs have never been cheaper, right? Where we're going to do differentiation is at the platform level, mm -hmm. which I think is a strength of Google and, and Microsoft more than Amazon, but everybody's doing it because it ultimately that's the value prop and machine learning being the largest mm -hmm. candy in the, in the, in the store here. Mm -hmm. But on the serverless with machine learning, so there is a bit of a tension, though, because uh, so I guess is like you could do serverless and expose pre-trained services as a mm -hmm. as serverless. But if I'm going to do uh, machine learning, typically I'm going to use something which is very CPU intensive, very long, and that kind of goes at odds with this. So do you no, but not not really because it's GPUs as a service now. You can just add GPUs on, and all three of the vendors have machine learning as a service where you can host your own model up there. That's just straight machine learning. And then the TensorFlow and MXNet is the distributed. Yep. So if you're, if you're more computationally intensive, and they also have, if you have the standard models like vision or video or whatever, they have those too. So, so it's so like the way you use it would be serverless, but uh, behind the scenes, it's probably not going to be serverless. Well, it's just an endpoint for you. It's okay. a black box. What if you could do a serviceless service? 
Now you're just getting weird. I, I actually think it's interesting when you mention the GPUs that, in theory, I guess the, the vendor is incented to execute any given function slash Lambda slash whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it as quickly as possible so you'll just run more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be interesting when we finally write one that just doesn't run that fast. How do we optimize this? Because I don't know that we have any visibility into that. Do you, do you think that's actually a problem and everything's running fast so far? Right. Well, again, from my production experience, we heavily relied on logs. Right. And now we have mm-hmm. X-Ray, which is, I don't know what the equivalent is in Azure, but it's a its a tracing tool. Mm-hmm. So it shows you through your application what the latency is, where the latency is. It's relatively new, supporting mm-hmm. Lambda, but super useful. Because we have to we had to piece together the logs before it visualizes it for you. And yeah. literally shows you a big arrow where the yeah. bottleneck is. I wonder if App Insights would pick that up on the Azure side. I know it there by news to it, it does, but I haven't yeah. I haven't used it. But okay. uh, yeah, I Firebase has a reporting tool that actually had a bug in it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's a there's an article on Medium where this company said ah, our cost went up by seven thousand percent. Yeah, it's a long story, but it was a bug in the Firebase reporting tool. But anyway, they do have exactly that where they show the median runtime of all your functions. Right. And so you can look at one and say, why is it running three seconds? But the interesting thing is they only charge you for CPU time. So mm. if you're just waiting for an I/O round trip, which a lot of times you are, mm-hmm. I don't. Know, they don't say how they calculate that. So there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area in there. You know what I mean? Because yeah. the actual CPU runtime in a database calls, I don't know, not fraction very much. of a second. Yeah. yeah. But just what's your bill? Times. What's your monthly bill? Like twenty bucks? Nine cents. That's my last. But I don't do very much. I serve files, and that's you know, yeah. and have some functions running when like a webhook comes in, and that's about it. How efficient do you want to be, and how much time do you want to spend on optimization when you're in the single digits? Yeah, yeah. single cents. Yeah. Nine cents, and then the, they take 2% two, 2% two of that <laughs> yeah, I know. for a service charge. It's robbery. Yeah. <laughs> the pricing model is interesting, too, so I don't know how it looks on, uh, on lambdas, but like on functions, it's like what you pay for is like time and uh, memory consumption. Mm-hmm. By default, it will cost you nothing. Like My first explanation expo- to that was a Twitter bot like where I had like 10 calls a month, and I was just hosting it on the cheapest possible machine I could, and that was like $12 a month. Right. So that's like very expensive per tweet. So I moved to the Azure functions and I got it to uh, essentially zero. And that was nice. But like if it was a bigger unit, it's like the incentives is uh, correctly aligned because I have to write code which is fast and which is like memory efficient. Yeah. So and it'll actually reduce your charges, right? Yep. Which it, that's, exactly. That's interesting. If you do the right thing, is like yeah. uh, you will pay you less. <laughs> You'll actually spend less. Although again, chasing around after $12, you know. Have any of you used Cosmos DB? Not yet. Not yet. Kind of brand new, really. We're just learning about it. Here. Yeah, came yeah. In, in the build time frame. Yeah. I guess it's the it's the pieces around it that matter because you don't have to think about scaling on the serverless part. So no more of this cloud front or any of those sorts of bits. Mm-hmm. It's just every call is is independent and it calls as many times as you want. It's just going to light up more. We talked about the the time that it takes to spin up. How much time are we talking for a, an Azure function? Like I think on a cold start is something of the order of three seconds, and I know that three seconds on yeah. a cold cold start, and that was a uh, I know that because uh, the other bots I was trying to do was uh, against Slack, which has a timeout uh, if you don't uh, respond within three. So the first call would have a problem, and afterwards it's uh, perfectly fine. But afterwards, what determines when it goes to sleep after you stop calling it for a period of time? Yeah, like the uh, I think it's of the order of maybe half an hour or oh, something okay. like that. Oh, that's not bad. So if you have like uh, the reason I had the problem was again like uh, my bots were not very active. Yeah. So typically you hope that you have more activity than one call. Is, is that per function or is that you know another? I'm trying to trying to figure out a way that I can make a dummy function or something like that that I can call it's when I alive. start my app like a keep alive. Yeah, you, you know? could yeah. do a, a function which calls you a function to make sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or just pass in a certain value and that tells it to not do anything. But mm-hmm. just wake up and Retiring. stay awake. 
Yeah. And you could avoid that as well because like you have two modes. So I never remember how they're called, but uh, it was called like dynamic and not dynamic. Essentially, the dynamic mode is where you pay only per usage, mm. but you can also make it uh, where you pay essentially, it's essentially on a VM. Yeah. And then you don't get the uh, pay per use, but you don't get the cold start either. That's the app services. The, uh, yeah, yeah. The app services mode. Yeah. It's so unique you're to re- Azure. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. An app services mode where it is always lit. You're paying for that. That's right. Yeah. It's uh, always mm-hmm. on. I, ju- is wh- I just realized called. that I sounded very first world problems when I said three seconds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, they had to go to space. Like the little <laughs> CK thing, right? You're in a chair in the sky. Slack. Yeah. <laughs> some slack, man. It's magic. Yeah. That's funny. What, um, what do you guys build next? What do you, I mean, you were working on the e-commerce pipeline, my friend. Yeah, I'm just going to build it out, see how far it takes me. I'm just going to keep chipping away at it. And are you it's not call the first it? time you've ridden that problem either, though. Yeah, it's unfortunately my albatross. Are, are you going to call it e-commerce thing.com? Probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Rob's yeah. e-commerce thing. Just, yeah, exactly. I got and you're just doing enterprise stuff, Lynn. No, I have something really interesting I'm actually talking about on Friday, and mm. I'm showing it. It's uh, I'm working with National Research Institute in Australia, and I uh, met them on a trip out there, and they wanted to move some work they had on-prem onto cloud, and it's a genomic processing. Ooh. It's a, it's a genomic. There's two types of genomic processing I'm going to show. One is for uh, CRISPR, which is uh, human genome editing oh, yeah. for, yeah. for um, personalized medicine. And another one is a project we're working on with machine learning as a service, Databricks, which mm. is really interesting. Wow. Spark, yeah. And that one is genomic sequence-wide studies, and this is being used in Australia for um, ALS research. Awesome. So some really cool stuff, trying yeah. To, trying to tear into that problem, which yeah. is, that's a big, complicated, hairy yep. problem. Diaz, anything coming up? I'm working in, a, I'm currently using functions on a, um, something which is like a, yeah, machine learning essentially on an existing project. That's the one I was talking about where there's a service and I'm getting data. And essentially, I need to see like how long a car takes to go from here to here. And I'm getting real time data and trying to adjust. Uh, as you get data, maybe a, a bridge is broken. And so I'm getting all this data in and trying to uh, adjust uh, the timing estimates I'm going to get. Wow. There's a lot in serverless that would lend itself to that massive scale type problems mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. IoT. Uh, issues. And it's interesting just to think about you're, you're just going to do that. It's not, you're never going to know. You're just going to get a bigger bill. Yeah. yeah. A lot. Well, Mateus, Lynn, Rob, thanks very much for talking to us mm-hmm. today and everybody in the audience. How about a big round of applause for our panel? And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a